γευσάμενον της αρκός αυτού και τούτο προλαβών της Αγίας ευχόησης, ο Άρτης της είναι επικράτης, είναι αντίστασικά, You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Backus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand the biblical text. In our last two episodes on the problem of translations, we spoke at length about the reasons why translators make errors. We discussed the challenges involved in this undertaking, In today's episode, the final in our series, we will look at several examples of errors. Translators make errors in their translation choices because they impose themselves onto the text. Let us next explore and distinguish three kinds of errors, all of which, in some distinct way, impose on the biblical text. The first kind of error that is an example of imposing on the text is the way translators make choices that sound nice or nicer in English. They choose words that are more palatable, more agreeable than what is written. Confronted with the text, with the words in their Hebrew or Greek, translators conclude that what's written is somehow unacceptable. And so, rather than render what is written or some equivalent to what is being expressed in quality and tone, they choose a word or words that tone down the text. They employ a euphemism. What is a euphemism? A euphemism is a mild or indirect word or expression substituted for one considered to be too harsh or blunt when referring to something unpleasant or embarrassing. In the biblical text, we find many words, expressions, and storylines that are scandalous to our ears. But the scandal is there on purpose. Our starting assumption when reading literature is that the writer chose that word or phrase for a reason. And when the translator opts for a euphemism, it is a corruption of the text and the outcome is that the writer's text is not conveyed. We spoke in the last three episodes about Jeff Benner and his work on Biblical Hebrew. He recognizes this phenomenon. On his website, he writes, There are a lot of things in the Hebrew Bible that cultured people do not talk about, so the translators have sanitized the text so that the readers are not offended. 
Unquote. I would argue that the most conspicuous example in the Bible of this sanitizing of the text is the way translators deal with the word thulos. Thulos is a Greek noun that means slave. The word thulos comes from the root deo, which means to bind, tie, or fasten, as with chains, to put under obligation. In Strong's Concordance, Thulos is number G1401. Thulos is found heavily in the whole Bible. We are more familiar with its usage in the New Testament books, but it is found more times in the Old Testament Septuagint books than in the New Testament books. Keeping in mind, of course, that the Old Testament portion of the Bible is much longer than the New Testament. Before we speak about the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, we should know the word in Biblical Hebrew. The word is ebed, and it means slave. Most English translations render it as servant, very seldom as slave. It's from the verb abad, which means to work, to labor, as in to work the ground. Now, let's turn to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Biblical Hebrew Old Testament. Ebed is translated curiously seldom as thulos, and quite often as pes, which means child. In the Septuagint, Thulos is found 335 times in 12 different forms. Its highest incidence, by far, is in the books of Samuel, Kings, and Psalms. It's interesting that the word Thulos is not found in Genesis, Exodus, or Numbers, and only twice in Leviticus and once in Deuteronomy. Its use in Deuteronomy helps us to understand its meaning. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 36, we hear, For the Lord will judge his people, and have compassion on his servants, read, Thuli, when he sees that their power is gone, and there is no one remaining, bond or free. Though Thulos means slave, it is seldom translated that way in English translations. Instead, the translators opt for servant. This verse from Deuteronomy is the New King James Version. Thuli, which is the plural of thulos, is translated as servants. I reviewed 15 other English translations of this verse, and what I found was telling. Not one of the 15 translated thuli as slaves. Not one. All 15 translated Thule as servants. This is incorrect. In the Bible, slave and servant are not synonyms. We will distinguish these terms in a short while. Now that we've looked at Old Testament occurrences of Thulos, let's take a look at the New Testament. Thulos appears over 120 times. We find the highest incidence in the Gospel books. Its highest incidence is in Matthew at 30 times, then Luke at 26 times, John at 11 times, 
and Mark at five times. We find it in Revelation at 14 times. In the Pauline letters, we have Galatians and Colossians tied at four times each. Consider the New King James Version translation. In Matthew, with the exception of Matthew 20, verse 27, all instances of thulos are translated as servant. In English translations of the Gospels, more often than not, servant is chosen to render thulos and not slave. But oddly, in the Pauline epistles, thulos is rendered as slave. I don't understand how the translator deemed slave appropriate in the epistles, but not in the Gospels. Let us now distinguish the two words in English, slave and servant. The Oxford Dictionary definition of slave is a person who is the legal property of another and is forced to obey them. A slave is owned. He or she is forced to serve in any way their owner or master decides. It is their owner who decides what they are to do. By definition, a slave's will is irrelevant. The command given a slave may or may not be against his or her will, but a slave's will is immaterial. They have no agency, no options, no choice. This is the meaning of the word slave in the Bible. We might surmise that the biblical writer uses this word slave in his text because that was the reality on the ground. Slavery was an institution and part of the social fabric in both the ancient Near East and ancient Rome. Servant is different. A servant is one who serves who performs a service for others. A servant may be a slave as well, a slave who serves in some capacity, but a servant isn't necessarily a slave. Servant suggests optionality, the ability or right to choose, to choose to serve. Servant also has the connotation of support. You can tell from the synonyms given for it. Helper, supporter. To provide a service is not the same as serving because you are told to serve. The unconditionality, the having no choice, that define thulos, slave, you can't hear in the word servant. In 19th century England, the expression, your servant, was used in polite society. It was a term of courtesy an expression of deference to another person. And of course, servants and people working in service were an on-the-ground reality in England for centuries. Lords and ladies in great manor houses looked after by servants. This was a part of English culture. Watch Downton Abbey for a look at how this worked. The 19th century English writer was the purveyor of this word servant. Consider the novels of Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, and of course the novels of Charles Dickens. You'll lose count of how many times a gentleman character utters the words, Your servant, madam, as he is being introduced or as he departs the scene.
You can picture the impeccably dressed gentleman gallantly exiting the doors of a grand manor house and stepping into a carriage. Let's come back to the Bible. How does this word thulos work in the Bible? How is it expressed in the storyline? In the Bible, God's people are his slaves. God posits his people this way, stamps them, so to speak, with this identity. Father Paul Tarazi, in his 2017 book, The Rise of Scripture, laments the common rendering of thulos as servant, calling it a, quote, distortion of the scriptural teaching, unquote. He explains that in the book of Exodus, God liberates his people, brings them out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. But that's incomplete, only part of the story. In the next book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus, God calls the people of Israel his slaves, whom he brought forth out of the land of Egypt. Father Paul writes, quote, Whenever the scriptural God liberates us, he does not change our status of slaves, but takes us under his wings as slaves and makes us his slaves. Unquote. Let us now consider another example, an example of how translations euphemize the text. We just learned that thulos is mistranslated as servant. Now consider the biblical Hebrew word ra, which means evil. In Strong's Concordance, it's H7451. Ra is the consonant letters resh ein. Its root meaning is to spoil or ruin by breaking into pieces. Its verbal forms are some variation of this basic meaning, and by extension, it means to do harm, to injure, to do evil. Ra is most often translated as evil. Ra is the word we find in the book of Genesis in that famous phrase, the knowledge of good and evil. It's interesting that its highest incidence by far is in the prophetic book of Jeremiah. It appears 123 times. The next highest incidence is in Proverbs at 68 times, but this is half the number, so not even close. We can tell simply from the word count that something is going on in Jeremiah. It's a tip-off, certainly of the mood of Jeremiah, and when we hear it, we hear what's going on. God is calling out the house of Judah for the evils they committed, and he declares that he will bring evil upon them. There is wordplay in Jeremiah around the word raw. Let's hear this at work in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 3, we hear, and say, Hear ye the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place. The which whosoever heareth, his ears shall tingle. Now, I can't resist an aside here. 
I don't know about this word tingle. The root word here, tzalal, has to do with vibration, but its meaning and use here is more accurately expressed as quiver or quake, as one does when they are frightened or terrified. I know we're focused on the word ra, evil, but this word tingle used here is also another example of what we are talking about, so let's point it out. Tingle, to render tsalal, is yet another example of the way translators tone down, euphemize the text. Tingle is hardly what one feels when in terror, and hardly what the writer meant to express here. In the Bible, no one tingles at the sound of God's judgment. Let us come back to the biblical Hebrew word ra, commonly translated as evil. We find the word in the book of Job. If you've read Job, you know that evil is a theme of this book. Recall that Job is an Old Testament book among the Ketubim, the writings. We find in Job another example of this way that translators tone down the text, and in doing so, misrepresent the original. Let us consider Job chapter 42 verse 11 and the way Ra is translated in 16 English translations. In the King James Version, we have Ra correctly rendered as evil. Then came there unto him all his brethren, and all his sisters, and all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him, and comforted him over all the evil, that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. Of the sixteen English translations, nine have something other than evil. We have that Job's brethren comforted him over all the adversity, adversities, trouble, trials, calamity, that the Lord had brought upon him. These words, adversity, trouble, trial, calamity, are softer, easier to hear in English, almost more sympathetic. These word choices betray a bias on the part of the translator, an underlying belief that the Lord God somehow couldn't possibly be the purveyor of evil. Maybe adversity, but not evil. But this is not so in the Bible. In the Bible, God is purveyor of good and evil as he sees fit, and he defines them. Our text is not written in English, and in Biblical Hebrew, here in this verse, the word is Ra. Job's brethren comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. One last example of this same phenomenon. Consider 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 14. We hear, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. As with our example from Job, here the word is Ra, 
an evil spirit from the Lord. And yet, four of the sixteen English translations I reviewed chose something else to render raw. They opt for a distressing spirit, a tormenting spirit, a harmful spirit, and my favorite euphemism from Young's literal translation, which in my opinion is misnamed, a spirit of sadness. This translation from Young's literal translation has, And the spirit of Jehovah turned aside from Saul, and a spirit of sadness from Jehovah terrified him. Sorry, Mr. Young, this translation is not remotely accurate, much less literal. Sadness is a far cry from evil, and so is a distressing spirit, but it's easier on the English ear, less harsh. Enough said. The second kind of error that is an example of imposing on the text, is the way translators try to make sense of what is written. The choices they make reveal what they are up to. They force the text to make sense to themselves. And in doing so, they disrupt the literary connections. They encounter the same word used in two different places in the text and translate that same word as two different words. So when you read or hear it in the English, you will not hear the connection. Literary connections are critically important. The story is communicated via literary connections. Let's consider an example, and that is the word teba. We meet the word teba in the book of Genesis chapter 7 in the context of the story of Noah and the Flood. Teba is translated as Ark. Noah and his family sheltered from the flood in a Teba. Let's examine this biblical Hebrew word. Teba is a feminine noun. Its origin is uncertain. Strong's Concordance proposes the possibility that it may be connected to the Egyptian word tebet. In this word, we have consonant letters only, so we don't actually know how it was to be pronounced. In English, it would be the letters T-B-T. Tebet refers to a chest or coffin. Perhaps the biblical writers had coffin in mind when they chose this word teba. And of course, Coffins, containers for the dead, were a central feature of Egyptian culture. This possibility of a connection between Teba and the Egyptian Tebet adds an ominous mood to the so-called flood story in the Bible. We might think of it as a kind of foreshadow, since we know the rest of the story and that it doesn't turn out well for the generations after Noah. It may indeed be a foreshadow, considering that the book of Genesis ends with a coffin. The word is Aron. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 26, the last verse of Genesis, we hear that Joseph dies, is embalmed, and put in a coffin in Egypt. The word here is not Teba, but it is Aron, 
Aron, as a verb, means to pluck, as in to pluck grapes off a vine, and by extension, to gather. And then the noun Aron in this verse is translated as coffin, and its root meaning is something into which things are gathered or collected. This word Aron is the word used when the Bible speaks of the Ark of the Covenant, heavily in Exodus and also in Deuteronomy. Now, why do I bring this up? Because I just pointed out that the origin of the word Teba may be related to the Egyptian word for coffin. Could the writer have had coffin in mind as he wrote his story? The end of Genesis certainly suggests that it is a possibility. Now let's come back to Teba. Recall that I am offering this word Teba, its usage in the Bible, as an example of how translators make word choices that show that they are trying to make the text make sense to them. You'll hear what I mean shortly. In all the Bible, the word Teba occurs only in the books of Genesis and Exodus. In Genesis, we hear it first in chapter 6, verse 14. God commands Noah to make a Teba, an ark. And then Teba occurs 26 more times in 23 verses. That's a lot. In nearly every verse, the ear is hit with this word Teba. Understand that this is emphasis. The author wants us to remember this word. We next hear this word Teba in the book of Exodus, but only twice, in Exodus chapter 2 and in connection with Moses. First, in Exodus chapter 2 verse 3, we hear, And when she, Moses' mother, could hide him no longer, she took for him a teba, basket, made of bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds at the river's brink. And again, in verse 5, where we hear, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked beside the river. She saw the teba, basket, among the reeds, and sent her maid to fetch it. These two verses in Exodus are the RSV translation. I compared 16 English translations of Exodus chapter 2 verse 3, and 9 out of the 16 translate Teba, Ark, as basket, including the popular Revised Standard Version and the English Standard Version. So what am I getting at? I'm pointing out that these nine translations didn't get it. Teba, which nearly all English translations translate as Ark in Genesis, is still Teba in these verses in Exodus. In Exodus, we have Moses being placed in a Teba, and that the daughter of Pharaoh saw this Teba among the reeds and sent her maid to fetch it. But because it didn't make sense to these nine translators that Teba, Ark, 
would apply to the place where Moses was laid. They decided that basket made more sense. A child might be lain in a basket, but how would they be laid in an ark? Doesn't make sense, does it? Here's the problem. It's not supposed to make sense to you, Mr. or Ms. Translator. It makes sense in the story. And by opting for basket in English, the connection between the stories of Noah and the ark and Moses and his ark, which I'm arguing that the writer intended, is broken. In English, we cannot hear that the Teba, Ark of Noah, is the same as the Teba, Ark, in which Moses was laid. These translation choices break the internal consistency of the story, the thematic thread that runs through, and this is not acceptable. The writer is connecting Noah's Ark that saved him and his progeny from the waters to Moses' Ark which saved him from the waters. It is not just the fact that the same word is used that reveals the thematic connection, but also that both Tabas are described in a similar way. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 14, God commands Noah that he should cover it inside and out with pitch, and we have something similar in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, in which Moses' mother daubed it with bitumen and pitch. In the Bible, the Teba is protection from the threatening waters, which ultimately God controls. Father Tarazi, whose work we have mentioned many times before, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, points out that this protection from the waters in both the Noah and Moses stories looks ahead, foreshadows Israel's exodus from Egypt in the book of Exodus, the parting of the waters of the Reed Sea. God controlling the threatening waters is a very interesting motif in Scripture. The third kind of error that is an example of imposing on the text is the way translators impose their assumptions on the text. We can tell this from the choices they make. One of the most egregious examples of this imposing is the Red Letter Edition Bible. This is an edition of the Bible in which the words spoken by Jesus in the Gospel books are printed in red. This highlighting is intended to help readers easily distinguish Jesus' words from the rest of the Gospel book content. The first red-letter edition New Testament was first published in 1899. Its originator was Louis Klopsch, German-American editor and later owner of Christian newspaper The Christian Herald. The red-letter edition Bible phenomenon is perhaps the exemplar of imposing one's assumptions onto the biblical text. Taking your interest and imposing it onto the text to serve your interest. The red-letter edition would have been a handy resource for our Mr. Tolstoy, as he was writing his book, The Gospel in Brief. And in fact, he and Mr. Klopsch were contemporaries. 
I wonder if they knew one another. Father Tarazi argues that this red letter highlighting creates an artificial hierarchy within the Gospel books, making the words of Jesus stand out from among the other words that comprise the Gospel books, communicates to the reader that they may dismiss that which is not spoken by Jesus. This is an outright distortion of the biblical text and is unequivocally unacceptable. Yes, it is well-intended, but it is a distortion just the same. Let's turn to some specific examples from the Bible. Examples wherein the translators have imposed their assumptions. In our last episode, Part 3, we distinguished reasons why translators make errors. Reason number 3 was what I described as a mindset problem. This is one in which the translator's point of view, their presuppositions about the text, they then apply to the text. And we can tell this by their translation choices. The first example is the biblical Hebrew word Hagah. I discussed this word in some detail in episode 13, How to Read the Bible Part 2. Because I have already examined this word in that episode, I will not belabor it here, except to point out how it betrays the translator's bias. Hagah means to murmur or mutter, and throughout the biblical text, it is used in reference to God's law, his commands, his wisdom. The instruction is that one should have God's commandments memorized such that they are always on one's lips, simply falling out of one's mouth in recitation. It is in this sense a murmur or mumbling. It is mindless in that it need not be thought about. It is the words that lead. There is no mental processing involved. Let's consider a specific use in the text. In Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, we hear, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall hagah in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. I reviewed 16 English translations of this verse, and 15 of the 16 translate Hagah as meditate. As I explained before in episode 13, this is a mistranslation. To meditate is from a Latin root which means to ponder, to mentally contemplate, to think over, reflect. What is the assumption we are questioning? It is, frankly, our tendency to value first and foremost what we think about. We lead culturally with our mind. It's the lens through which we understand ourselves. The individual with their book, doing their private reading and study, is a kind of cultural emblem, and it's built into the English language. English is built conceptually on Greek philosophy, and its focus is on thought. So the choice of meditate to render Hagah was sensible to the translator whose mind is philosophical. 
the one English translation out of the sixteen that translates Haggah in a manner closer to the meaning of Haggah is the New English Bible translation. It translates Haggah as memorize. The New English translation of Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 reads, This law scroll must not leave your lips. You must Haggah. Memorize it day and night so you can carefully obey all that is written in it. Then you will prosper and be successful. To memorize the law and thereby have no excuse but to obey the law is what is meant here. Let us turn to another example of an English mistranslation wherein the translator's starting assumption has influenced his translation choices. And this comes to us from our second episode in this series. Under reason number one for why translators make errors, we spoke about the word nefesh. We offered it as an example of the concrete versus abstract distinction between Biblical Hebrew and English. But its common English translation is also a good example of how the translator's philosophical point of view influences their choices. The word nefesh, which means breathing, a thing that breathes, is most commonly translated as soul, S-O-U-L. As I said before, soul is a philosophical word, and when the translator renders nefesh as soul, it exposes his philosophical point of view. Nefesh is found 33 times in 36 verses in the book of Job. It's a repetition that the biblical Hebrew ear could not miss. But a biblical Hebrew ear hears breathing. And yet, the translator, by choosing soul, is expressing something else. He is redefining the breathing one and turning it into the inner spirit, the spiritual essence of man. This word soul and its lofty and ethereal definition is not what nefesh means, and not what the writer intended. In Job, hear how clunky and nonsensical the translation sounds. Consider Job chapter 30, verse 16. We hear, And now my soul pours itself out within me. Days of suffering take hold of me. How can a soul pour out of a man? But a nephesh, a breath, certainly can. Breath is expelled from the lungs, and in this way pours out of a man. This is a poetic way of expressing that life is being exhausted, spent, weary, fading away, as on the edge of death. We have the figurative expression, taking one's last breath. Our final example is the Biblical Hebrew word yadash. It is found in Strong's Concordance, H3423. Yadash is most commonly translated as to possess, to possess and thereby to dwell somewhere. But it is also translated, less often, as to inherit. Possess and inherit don't mean the same thing. 
To possess is different than to inherit. To possess something is to have a belonging of one's own, something that is yours. For example, you might say, I possess a television. It means, I own a television. But to inherit is different. To inherit means to receive something, to be given, gifted something by someone else. You might say, I inherited a television from my uncle. It means, my uncle gave me his television. The emphasis is on the gift, not the possession. You don't own it in the same way. You didn't buy it. It was given to you. We find Yerash most heavily used in the book of Deuteronomy, more than any other book in the Old Testament. It occurs 71 times in 34 chapters. Joshua is next at 29 times in 24 chapters. Yadash is an interesting word. Depending on its verbal form, it can mean possess, and it can also mean dispossess, to cause to possess as in grant, and to cause to dispossess as in to kick out or exile. I reviewed the 71 instances of Yadash in Deuteronomy. Only three are translated as inherit. And in two verses, we have Yadash translated as possess, but preceded by the word nahala, an inheritance. So in total, there are only five instances wherein the translation renders the meaning of inheritance. So what's the issue? The issue is that the translation of Yadash as possession does not fit the storyline in Deuteronomy. Recall that the book of Deuteronomy, which means the second law, is set in the wilderness. Moses is leading the people, and they are nearing the land which God has promised. But before they are permitted to enter, Moses is retelling, reciting, reminding the people of the law, of God's rules that they must follow in order to dwell in the land. It's a long, long speech and it functions as a warning. Moses is setting the people straight, making the rules crystal clear with no room for doubt, so that no one might claim that they didn't know the rules. Moses is telling them that this land is not theirs. Its proprietor is the Lord God, and he has decided to permit them to occupy the land because he made a promise not to them, but to their fathers, their predecessors. It's intended to be a humbling reminder to Moses' audience that they are not the first. The gift is not to you, but to those who came before you. For the people, the land is an inheritance, a grant. They may occupy it, use it, but they cannot do whatever they want. There are rules. They cannot behave as if they own the land, because it is not theirs. In the story, the Lord God posits the people as renters, beholden and accountable to their landlord. Yarash as possession gives the hearer the wrong impression. 
it makes it sound as though God is making Moses' people the owners of the land. It rings of partiality, that somehow the people are special among all others, and so God favors them above all others. This is absolutely not what is being expressed in Deuteronomy. Moreover, this is a misread of the totality of the biblical story. The translator's choice of possession over inheritance betrays their point of view. Their what you might call political perspective that biblical Israel is favored by God as rightful possessors of the land. This is a retrojection, an extra-biblical assumption that the translator is imposing on the text. Let us wrap up our discussion. It is to 19th-century Russian-American novelist Vladimir Nabokov and his words that I turn to sum up our lengthy four-part discussion. He writes that there are three grades of translation evils. Errors, slips, and willful reshaping. This, it seems to me, is a bite-sized and fitting summary of what we have heard in these episodes. We have heard a great deal on this topic, and having heard such heavy content, perhaps we could use a bit of consolation. To know that we are not alone in contending with the vexing problem of translations. Maybe students of the Bible don't have it that bad. Consider the plight of translators working to render Mandarin Chinese into English. Many consider Mandarin Chinese to be the most difficult language of all languages to translate into English. As we can guess, the reasons are complex. It's a tonal language, which means the words have several meanings based on tones, which are auditory, based on the sounds. So how do you translate that to paper? We won't even mention the use of multiple homophones, idioms, and aphorisms, and it's over 80,000 characters. So let us take heart, my friends. It can be done. With effort, focused attention, energy, and time, serious students of the Bible can hear what the writers, in their languages, meant to say. Wishing you all a happy new year. Until next time, this is Vexed. Vext is a production of the Ephesus School Network.